Today's episode was with Paul, a former pornography consumer and current team coordinator for the anti-trafficking organization El Pozo de Vida in Mexico City. Paul explains how his initial exposure to pornography at a young age led to an escalation in consumption during his college years, impacting his relationships and mental health. He discusses the role of therapy in his recovery process and the importance of vulnerability in sharing his story. Paul also highlights the connection between pornography and trafficking, emphasizing the need to address the demand for such content. He describes the work of his organization in Mexico, which focuses on prevention, intervention, and restoration for survivors of trafficking. Paul encourages others not to give up and to remember that there's always hope. With that, let's jump into the conversation. We hope you enjoy this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Paul, thank you so much for being here with us today. We're so excited to get to speak with you. For any of our followers who haven't seen, we have a video of your story um, from a couple of years ago that's so compelling, so we'd encourage anyone to go watch that. We'll link it in the show notes. But for anyone who hasn't seen that, can you introduce yourself to us, Paul? Of course. Uh, My name is Paul, and I am a business economics graduate from UCI in California, and I currently work in Mexico City with an anti-trafficking organization. And I have a huge interest in film and telling stories. And so, yeah, that's a little bit about myself. Can you tell us a little bit about your decision to move to Mexico? Of course. Um, So the decision, the story is kind of long, but I'll synthesize it. Um, I first came to Mexico City in 2015 as part of a group of college students. And we were just coming for spring break to kind of see um, we had some connections in the community um, that had actually come to start this organization in Mexico City that was doing anti-trafficking work. And I had never heard of anti-trafficking or really human trafficking at that point. Um, And so when I came here, uh, there were only a few projects at that time. There was a safe house for underage human trafficking survivors, as well as as a salon in the red light district. And I was really, really impacted by what I saw. Um, However, um, at that time, I was also struggling a lot with pornography. And so it felt like uh, while I was really excited about what they were doing, it also felt like uh, I I was partially responsible. Um, And so I kind of just started donating to the organization and then just kind of forgot about it. Um, And that was the first time I came back. In 2019, I finally returned and did like a two-week trip where I taught some intro to business principles classes and and spent more time um, with girls at the safe house. And then it started this pattern of where like I would start returning every couple of years. So during the pandemic in 2021, I visited again for three weeks. And so my joke is that every time I came, it just like exponentially grew in terms of time that I was staying. Um, And then... I finally decided in 2022 that I wanted to shoot a documentary about what was happening in Mexico City and and the work that um, this organization was doing. And so I, you know, asked for time off from work and I decided to go for the month of June, return to the U.S. um, for two weeks, the first two weeks of July to do some uh, end of quarter two accounting things and then return back for two months. So from July until September. And when I, when I arrived, 
uh, in June, uh, a few days after I arrived, I actually contracted COVID <laughs> and oh. I, I got really sick and uh, I was on like death's doorsteps. And, and so I was just quarantined in my host family's house and I had my Nintendo Switch and my thoughts. And so I would play my Switch until the battery died and charge it. And I remember thinking that I would rather be be sick in Mexico City, like helping um, with and I'm working alongside this organization, then I would be super healthy and well off in, in California. So that's kind of a little bit of how I got there. So then when I went back for those two weeks, I also turned in my two weeks. Um, mm -hmm. And then the rest is history. <laughs> amazing. That's amazing. And so obviously, a lot of things have happened in your life that have kind of led you to this work. Um, can we start at the beginning? And can you tell us how did you first access pornography? Of course, of course. So I was 13. And my family right after um, kind of like the economic crisis in 2006, 2007, we relocated from um, Los Angeles to San Diego. And while we were there, you know, my dad was starting his new job and they put us in temporary housing and we were looking for a place to stay. And at one of these places, while they were kind of scouting it out and talking with who they thought was the landlord, I was being, you know, a standard teenager, snooping around in the rooms, trying to figure out which one uh, was the one I wanted. And I stumbled into, and the house was completely empty, um, except for um, there was this closet and I walked into the closet and I saw this stack of magazines on the side and they were um, they were covered up with like these data sheets. It's kind of hard to explain, but there's like all this analytic like data sheets and they were covering magazines. And so you couldn't see what the magazine was unless you opened it. So of course, me being myself and being curious, I um, opened one of those magazines and it was pornography. And at that age, uh, that was the first time that I'd seen like somebody naked. And so for me, I was both like disgusted, but also very intrigued. <laughs> and so I remember I took one of these magazines and I took it with us to our, like the place where we were staying. And I was like looking at it and then I felt guilty. And so like, I threw it away. Um, but this was like the entry point. And from there, 2007 was also, it was either 2007 or 2008 was when the iPhone was introduced. Right. And so that completely changed everything in the world as we know it. Um, we could go on for, for days about a list of all the things that the phone has replaced. Um, and that was also when, you know, internet pornography, you know, like started rising and, and started growing. And so just as, you know, that was happening, you know, I was starting high school and I had, you know, a separate room in the house, like downstairs. And so I would use this you know, laptop that we had, that we were supposed to use for school, but then I would, you know, my curiosity killed the cat <laughs> and I would just be, you know, like searching for things. And, um, that's basically the story of how I first accessed pornography. And then the magazines kind of led me unconsciously into the world of internet pornography. And that was kind of the, the gateway drug for me. Yeah. Was there a particular point where your porn consumption really escalated? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> So after high school, I went to um, college at the University of California at Irvine. Um, I, you know, with the conversation with my parents, you know, decided to um, pursue electrical engineering, even though I did really poorly on my math and physics exams, uh, like the AP courses. 
Um, and I really wanted, I think I wanted to study something film related, um, but you know, engineering seemed like a better bet. And so I was giving it my all. Um, I had been homeschooled up until high school. And so when I went to high school, it was actually pretty easy for me. I think that may have actually hamstrung me or kind of shot me in the foot. So when I got to college, it was a whole new ball game. I had not seen most of the things I was learning before. So I didn't have that competitive edge I had before. And so I was giving it the best that I knew how, and I was still not uh, performing at the level that I needed to. And so I started leaning hard, you know, you don't have parents, no one's there to, you know, be checking on you. Are you doing your work? You know, are you coping in healthy ways? And so um, I remember my sophomore year of college, I started consuming heavily um, because at the same time as my grades were, you know, plummeting, uh, my porn consumption was rising. And ironically, you know, if, you know, if I had probably just coped in a healthier way and stuck with engineering, I think I probably could have survived. But my answer to coping with all the stress and uncertainty was watching hours of pornography every day. So that just tanked me. I was on academic probation for uh, two months. And then I remember getting called into the counselor's office and uh, they said, you have to change majors or we're going to kick you out of the school. And if you want to change into this major that you're thinking about, we can't offer the prereq classes that you need here because they're all impacted. They're all full. So you have to figure it out during the summer and you have to take these two classes. Otherwise, we're we're kicking you out. And it was like a super rude awakening. Um, and yeah, and that was probably the worst it's ever been. Um, there's, yeah, there's a story where I was basically like, I came back home from class during the summer at like 3 p.m. and I started consuming and I didn't stop consuming until like six in the morning. And I saw the sun coming up and I was so tired and I felt terrible. Um, but that was like my reality at that time. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and what what ways other than just taking your time and what ways did you notice it impacting your life? So one thing I've always kind of prided myself in is that I think partially because of how I was homeschooled, um, I have this really good ability to talk with people. And even though I may not be the most comfortable in social situations, I can find a way to make connections and get people to talk about themselves and, you know, read body language. And I'll oftentimes, you know, start telling a story or a joke and then switch, um, switch topics completely because I'm reading that this person is not interested, right? And for me, you know, relationships and, and being accepted are something that's like super huge for me. And I noticed over years, right? So I started consuming when I was 13. And by the time I was in college, you know, at the time of that story, you know, I was probably 20. Um, you know, by the time I had graduated college, I was still consuming. And I was noticing that my ability to read nonverbal cues was starting to really, really uh, become a parent. Um, on top of that, um, platonic friendships with, with girls, like I have two sisters as well as four cousins who are all girls. So I've always found it easier to talk with women than it is with men. I find there to be less, you know, um, I don't know. It's just generally easier to connect. Right. And so for me, I was starting to realize that I would start to have all these, you know, intrusive thoughts when I was talking with my female friends, like, oh, was that, you know, was that glance like, 
like a, like a signal? Was that a message, you know? And I started, I, I don't think I realized until a little bit later, but I was basically consuming so much pornography that the themes and the shots and the looks that people like would give in pornography, I was starting to overlay that onto my normal life. So I was starting to realize that that was really happening. I also noticed that my ability to have self-control was decreasing. So whereas in the past, you know, if I consumed or something, close my computer and then stop and then go and do something else, my ability to stop um, was also decreasing. You know, it, it could turn one session could turn into this like hour long debacle. Um, and I started noticing that, you know, I was more depressed. I was more anxious. Um, there was a lot more, I don't know if existentialism is the right word, but I would, my mental health was severely decreasing. And um, that's just to kind of name a few things. Um, I think it, if you took a snapshot of me then, and you took a snapshot of me now, my brain would be completely fried in that, in that specific snapshot of time. So it impacted, I think, every area of my life, especially interrelationally. Yeah. And um, you had been seeing a therapist. Is there a certain point that you started addressing pornography and therapy? And how did addressing that impact the other things you were working through as well? So in 2018, I started seeing a therapist. Um, my dad had actually been the one who recommended it to me. Um, he had gotten laid off from a job. And as part of his severance package, they gave him therapy sessions. And when he went, he felt that it was so beneficial. And he was like, you guys have to start going. And I was very resistant at first. But then I started noticing that I was in a relationship at this time. And I realized that I was projecting a lot of my insecurities based upon a past relationship in which I had done a lot of shady things um, onto her, even though this was a completely new relationship. So for me, I was like, I need to start going to therapy. So when I started going, they have a little questionnaire you fill out and they ask you, what are, you know, three things that you want to work on? And so I was talking about, you know, help with making difficult decisions in life and, um, you know, uh, finding purpose for what I want to do with my life and also pornography. Uh, I have this bad habit of viewing pornography and I don't want to have this problem anymore. And it was very interesting how she didn't start with pornography. So a lot of it was just talking about coping mechanisms and talking about life-giving activities and how can you incorporate things into your life that give you, that energize you and that make you happy um, so that when you, when you're done doing those activities, you net positive, right? And then from there, then we got into more heavy duty concepts. You know, we talked about grounding exercises. We talked about breathing. And then we started doing like, you know, maybe some EMDR therapy and then, you know, visiting childhood hurts. And it was insane how this combination of all these different things, um, started to help me rewire my brain. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reading this book called Atomic Habits right now, but it's ironic because a lot of the things that they talk about in this book, it's by, I think James Clear is his name, um, were things that I was unconsciously doing 
during this time with therapy. Whereas like, if there's a bad habit you have, then, and you don't want to do it anymore, you need to make it difficult to do or invisible. And if there is a habit that's good that you want to do, you need to make it very easy for you to do, very accessible. And I think that played a huge part. And so when we're talking about how, you know, these other things I was working through impacted my relationship with pornography, it was like all positive, but not in the way that I thought it would be. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, I've had a eureka moment and now I'm not going to watch porn anymore. It was like this very laborious uh, process because for me, it was like, you know, if you think about your mind and it's like, you know, there's a flow chart of decisions you can make. For me at that point, when I wasn't healthy, every road like led to pornography. It's like, how am I feeling? I'm anxious. Okay, porn. (laughs) How am I feeling? I'm depressed. Pornography. I feel lonely. I'm bored. You know, I'm hungry. Like I just woke up and I, you know, my habit is to look at my phone. So it was just like, I had to go through all these different things. And, um, but it was so incredibly helpful because then the roads that were leading to pornography were getting rewired. So then it was like, oh, I, you know, am, you know, anxious. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do some breathing and maybe I'm going to go play basketball. You know, Um, I'm lonely. Okay, I'm going to, you know, call one of my friends or I'm going to initiate hanging out with somebody right now. Um, You know, I feel, you know, uncertain about the future. Okay, maybe I need to create something. Maybe I should write about how I'm feeling. Um, And so, yeah, in a nutshell, that's kind of what therapy helped me with. You know, we often talk about how research shows that people who consume porn frequently are more likely to objectify other people. And you kind of talked about this briefly and mentioning how your interactions with your female friends changed, but was there a time that you realized that was something you'd been doing? Yeah, absolutely. So I think at a subconscious level, when I was at my least healthy, I knew that I was objectifying people because, you know, I would be driving down the street in Orange County in California. And then I would have these really interesting thoughts as I'm driving, I see someone running And then I'm just thinking, oh, like, I wonder what this person is like, you know, and um, but I don't think it really clicked and hit home for me until um, so I was working um, and helping to grand open these restaurants. And as I was, um, you know, it was like this, this, this popular chain of restaurants and we would go to this program um, in order to learn how to be like these certified Um, people who could train like at these grand openings of restaurants. And I was at one of these grand openings of these restaurants and there was this guy there um, who was really like kind of strange Um, and I'll elaborate, but basically even though we're in like a very closed environment and we're all in the back of the house and, you know, we're assembling all these, all these food items, there's still a lot of space even though we're just jam-packed in there like sardines, there's us, there's the trainees and everybody. You're not really rubbing shoulders with people and just like, you know, in a sardine can. But this guy would always like try and force contact with me in this store. And I was only there for like a week, but the previous week, um, actually, sorry, I was there for two weeks. He was only there for the second week. But in the time leading up to that, 
second week where he was there, I was talking a lot with certain of like the other female trainers. And I was like asking them for advice because it's how I am about how to manage certain things in my own store and how to deal with uh, interpersonal relations and, and dealing with conflict. And this guy, um, rumors spread. And, and, and even though, you know, I had told people I had a girlfriend, she was on my screensaver and everything. Um, like there was this rumor that spread and people were like, oh, um, you know, um, Paul is, you know, interested in, in, in other guys, right? And so this guy apparently heard that rumor. And so he started like forcing contact with me in like really uncomfortable ways where he'd like bump into me and always like make eye contact with me. And I would always glare at him and like, you know, not encourage it. Um, but then one day as I was taking out the trash, you have to like kind of go through this very small corridor to go out, throw out the trash and come back in. And the way that the store was structured, when you re-enter, um, you, nobody can see that little, that little passageway. And he started coming down the opposite side. And then when he came down the opposite side, he like came up to me and then he groped me. And so I like was like super shocked. I didn't know what to do. So I like threw his hands off me and I was like, get your hands off me. And he was like, whoa, sorry, I got the wrong idea. But the thing that creeped me out the most was this look that he gave me like while he like assaulted me. And the entire rest of the, the trip, I was just like really kind of confused and I didn't know what to do with it. I was like, do I report it? But this specific like chain was like, I was in a minority group in terms of, you know, the ethnic representation, right? And so for me, I was like, no one will believe me. Like why, <laughs> you, know, what? you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, why would I say anything? And um, I actually ended up going home and I only told a handful of people. I told my sister. Everybody was like very encouraging and very, you know, that was not okay, you know? But I didn't talk about it in therapy until several years later. And when I did, um, as I was talking to my therapist, I said, you know, I think the thing that really, there's so many things wrong and uncomfortable about that. But I think the thing that weirded me out the most was that when he looked at me, I recognized that look because that's the same look that I have when I'm viewing pornography, right? Mm -hmm. Because when he looked at me, he wasn't looking into my soul or, you know, seeing me as who I was. He was looking at me like I was a piece of meat. Like I was an object to be used, to be consumed. And that freaked me out. But I realized like that is exactly how I view pornography. And so, yeah, that was the time that I realized. And I think that was a really, a really loud wake up call for me because I was like, you know, not to demonize the guy, he's human, but for me, I was like, I never want to be so, you know, hooked on to this drug <laughs> that, yeah. you know, I can't see people as human, you know, and that I just want to exact what I want from them. So, yeah, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And thank you for sharing that with us. And I think it's really powerful that you were able to, to also gain that insight through therapy and and processing that and kind of acknowledge how your own consumption was affecting you as well kind of leading out of that struggle and into you know recovery that you are experiencing now when did you start sharing about your struggles with pornography and what was that experience like for you to be honest uh, I was always hoping that my problem would magically go away and that I could tell people about it in hindsight 
and be like, yeah, I used to be, and now I'm not. And so I could be this hero to people. Um, but that did not happen. Yeah. Um, because there was a lot of healing that had to happen. And a lot of that had to come from like, transparency. And so, um, you know, I've been part of communities that are very legalistic and that, you know, it just becomes very moral and that has never worked out for me. And so for a long time in my life, I just wore two masks. I was one person to a certain group of people and one person by myself. And I think I started sharing like, um, about my struggles in 2019, I think is when it's either 2019. Yeah, it's definitely 2019. Sorry. <laughs> in 2019, I started writing. So um, I had started writing like many, many years ago, um, but you know, I would blog. And so I started writing, but I started writing about pornography and I stopped being vague. I started sharing personal experience that I had. And it was incredibly embarrassing for me because, you know, people think you're a certain person and then you live with this lie in your head um, that if people knew who I was, right, this is a theme that I think has been repeated on the podcast many times. If people knew who I was, people knew what I was doing, they would shun me, they would hate me. Um, and it was this really strange thing where I started writing like Instagram little story things about my experiences. And then I started writing blog posts about it, sharing about my experience. And the ironic thing was, it felt like I was putting the carriage in front of a horse because I wasn't done yet. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't completely healed and, and all good, but I started talking about it. And I think that really changed my own recovery journey. I think so many of us wish that we could just um, recover magically without having to say anything. And I'm not saying that you need to, but for me personally, I think it was a huge part in my recovery because then what happened was a strange thing where all of a sudden I was getting these random responses to these stories from people who I hardly knew anymore. You know, that's how social media works. It's like, I haven't talked to this person in person for like 10 years, but we're friends. Yeah. And they're like, Hey, thanks for sharing that. Uh, I struggle with that too. And it means a lot to me that you would talk about it. And I was like, wow. And I didn't, you know, I didn't, this is not either, this is not to elevate myself either, because for me, I was just terrified of even talking about it. But I think there was a moment where I realized, you know, I'm already like, you know, waist deep into this. I might as well just jump into the water and just start really talking about it. And around the same time, I think before I started writing and sharing about it, I did find by like some random chance consider before consuming on my Spotify. It was recommended to me and I don't know how, you know, there's so many podcasts. I don't know how it showed up, but it showed up. And I was like, what is this? You know, is this like about drugs or something? And they're like, you know, we are, a, you know, a podcast that talks, you know, educating about the harmful effects of pornography. And I was like, what? And so I started <laughs> listening to the podcast and it really encouraged me. You know, I was hearing all these people, academics, celebrities, people talk about this in a very non-shame based way. And so this combined with therapy, I was like, you know what? I'm going to start talking about this because if me talking about it allows certain people to not feel alone or by themselves or isolated, then that's worth it. You know, I, what I've done has already been done and I have to be at peace with, you know, the choices I've made. 
And so why should I just let all this struggle and, you know, sadness and, and, and anxiety and everything I struggled through for so many years go to waste? Like I should, if, if this can help somebody, if this can encourage someone, then if just one person knows they're not alone, that's worth it to me. Um, and it's ironic too, because as I started to share, the recovery process exponentially increased. And I'm going to explain why I think that is. And I think it's because, you know, when we're with our friends, when we're on social media, we have this perception of who we are. And, you know, when our friends are like, oh, you know, I like hanging out with you. You're cool. You know, we feel a certain way. But at three in the morning when no one's awake and it's just us and we're with our thoughts, there's all this space for these negative, you know, thoughts to enter our head. And one of those is if people knew who you were, they wouldn't want to be friends with you, right? And you would be alone. And the crazy thing is that as you share, as you're vulnerable, like I heard it said that vulnerability is like handing somebody a knife and turning around, right? They have the opportunity to stab you in the back, but you're trusting that they won't. And I think for me, like what I really learned is that as I was being vulnerable, I no longer had those thoughts at three in the morning about who, like, if people knew who I was, they wouldn't be friends with me. Because guess what? My close circle knew. And after the blog, everybody knew who was reading the blog, right? And after I was posting Instagram stories, everyone who followed me on Instagram knew, right? So it was like, yeah, this was the deepest, darkest secret I held for so many years. But now people know. So what, what negative, you know, what can people, you know? And so I think, yeah, so many of us are waiting for the panacea to fix our problems and We'll never have to say anything about, we can just talk about it in hindsight. But I think a huge part of recovery is actually about talking about it in the present. That's so well said. And I just want to commend you on on sharing so vulnerably. I mean, even here with us today, I think hopefully anyone who's listening to this will experience something similar to what you experienced when you first started listening to the podcast as well. There's so much power and the ability to break down the stigma often associated with this topic and break down the shame really does open a lot of space for healing. So, and that has led you into the life you're in now. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in Mexico. So I work with an organization called El Pozo de Vida, which means the well of life. Um, they're about 13 and a half years old right now. Um, they started as just one um, safe house for underage human trafficking survivors um, in Mexico City. And from that time, they've grown into nine different projects. We work in the areas of prevention, intervention, and like restoration or like reintegration of our beneficiaries into um, the world. And um, our prevention projects are awesome. You guys are doing amazing prevention work as well. Um, I love the work that Fight the New Drug does, but we um, we work um, uh, we work with children who are going to schools. So we believe education is key, uh, much like you guys do. Um, we have a campaign that's going to launch next year about digital violence, uh, because we're not really adapting as a society as well to the dangers of the digital world as we could be. Um, but this project goes into the schools and educates students and parents. And the goal is to kind of turn kids into activists about um, you know, common modalities that lead into human trafficking. Because we believe that the more people who are educated, the less people who are gonna get tricked. Um, we also have a project that goes to migration centers 
And because we've noticed that people who are migrating are also especially vulnerable to being victims of, or yeah, victims of trafficking. Um, we have another project that um, specifically works with children who are in a situation of begging, which is a huge issue in Mexico City. Um, and then our fourth and final prevention project is actually a prevention project with men. And so this is going to sound really crazy, but we literally go into red light zones and we like camp out by like the door of like a brothel. And then we talk with the consumers that are there. So we set up like a little mobile coffee cart and we, we talk to them about, you know, misconceptions about um, women who are working in a situation of prostitution or people who are being trafficked. It's an incredible project because there are so many misconceptions about human trafficking, right? And so another thing that we also deal with in, in Mexico is machismo, or in English, toxic masculinity, which is also a problem in the United States and worldwide. Um, so there's a lot of misconceptions about, you know, oh, they must really love sex a lot, or they must make a lot of money, or, you know, all these things. And so our job is just to kind of um, we also go into the schools and educate about toxic masculinity and healthy masculinity, but specifically in these conversations with these consumers or potential consumers, we ask a lot of questions and have a lot of uncomfortable conversations. So one of our questions is, you know, we'll ask, you know, th these potential Johns, like, oh, if it was up to you, you know, how many sexual encounters would you want to have in a day? And like, you know, they puff up their chest and they're like, oh yeah, I'd love to have like, I think three would be good, you know, like I could, you know, I'd be super macho, right? And then we're like, okay, what if I told you that um, some of these, uh, some of these, these women, um, they have to have 35 every day. What, what would you say to that? And they're like, and, and we ask them, could you do that? And they're like, oh no, absolutely not. There's no way, you know? And, and then, you know, like, oh, they must make a lot of money. And then we, we break down like the economics of, you know, and then we talk about, did you know that, you know, um, there's this misconception that Johns are helping, you know, some of these women. And we're like, did you know that um, some of the, uh, most of, or a lot of the women that we've seen in the time that we've worked there, that we've talked with, um, they have actually been trafficked at some point or are currently being trafficked. Like they are being held there against their will. What would you say? And you'd be like, no, no, like they can't be. And so I, I it's one of my, I, I love all the projects, but I find this project to be super important and very in line with also just, I believe, the prevention work that um, we really have to do um, because having these uncomfortable conversations and addressing these misconceptions is key to addressing the demand, right? We we have yeah. like my shirt right here says stop the demand. It's an old bite the new drug shirt. And I think, you know, if we don't address the demand like you guys are doing, um, we'll always be many steps behind where we need to be, right? And especially with the increase of the internet and everything, we really have to, you know, really address that. Um, we have a few intervention projects. One is a community center in the red light district. And then we also have this um, project called the block party, which goes into red light zones and kind of interrupts the commercial sex trade for a night. Once like every month, we like have a party for the, for the women and just, it's pretty awesome, pretty neat. Um, and then our restoration projects, we have a safe house, like I was talking about for the underage human trafficking survivors. The goal there is to, um, to double as a rehabilitation arm. So they receive full medical, psychological care, like emotional care, like, you know, it's just trying to get them off of whatever, you know, drugs that they might be on and like to help them like become healthy again, but it also works as a witness protection arm. And so the government like 
does these raids when they hear about underage human trafficking and they disperse them between these 12 different safe houses in Mexico City. And ours happens to be one of them. Um, and so that's really awesome. And then we have a transition house for girls who age out of the safe house. And this is like for them to have resources to go to school, to pursue higher, um, you know, like trade school or, you know, start working. Um, and the whole goal is to like equip them so that they're able to reintegrate into society. And we also have our final restoration project, which is called Nuna U, which means uh, freedom in the original Mestec, which is like the language, the indigenous language here. And these are women that have come from the, from the community center and um, who have basically told us like, we don't want to be, to be working here anymore. Can you help us? And many years ago, we decided to start this um, jewelry project. And so they make jewelry, they receive a fair wage, they play a part in the production, the marketing, the design. We just actually recently launched our um, 2023 line. And so it was awesome. Um, but yeah, that's a little bit about what the work that we do here in Mexico. My, my actual job is I host teams that come and visit from the United States and abroad. So my job is to have conversations like the one we're having right now, as like part of my daily job. And then I get to show people Mexico City, but also the work that we're doing and how they can take what they learn here and apply it to their own social context. Amazing work. It's so important to have such thorough aftercare kind of built in place when you're doing this work with survivors. So we commend you on your work. How has spending time with these girls in safe houses and in doing this work you're doing helped you understand the connections between pornography and trafficking? What I've realized is that pornography, at the heart of it, it teaches us, it grooms us to objectify people, right? And so instead of seeing people as human beings and people who we should respect and who have dreams and aspirations of their own, who have their own desires and their own likes and dislikes, we start to see everyone as a potential object that we can act upon, um, you know, um, just on a daily basis. And so instead of seeing people, you know, as they're walking down the street and, and wondering like, oh, like, I wonder what this person's story is. You know, I wonder where, uh, where they work and, and what they're doing. We're just like, you know, at least for me personally, I was just walking by internally rating people and wondering like if this fantasy in my head played out, how it would go with this person, right? And, you know, in the safe house, uh, a huge deal here in Mexico is this concept of this quinceanera, which is like celebrating, you know, your 15th birthday. And it's like this coming of age ceremony. And it's this huge big deal. You know, it can be as big and as lavish as weddings. Right. And it's like, you know, yeah. this huge party. And a lot of these girls, like they range at the safe house between the ages of 11 and 17. Okay. And I did not remember how young 11 was until I got here, but 11 is like, it's, it's, I, I don't even know what to say. You know, it's just so young. And so a lot of these girls, they never got to celebrate the quinceanera. Some of the older ones were being trafficked at that time. So they just, they didn't even get to celebrate, right? And so one of the things that we do here is we'll have these like late or sometimes on time quinceaneras. And it's like, you know, we're all at the safe house, we have a party, they have the whole dress, we do a whole thing, the girls do a choreography, you know, we do gifts, we do food, we, you know, it's just like a whole thing. And I remember, like, I've gone to several of these now, and, you know, 
as I've been going through therapy, I've been trying to recover my ability to cry, right? Because I lost that sometime in my trauma. And I remember one time I was there at a quinceanera and I was just like, you know, my eyes are filling with water. And because I was looking at all these girls and I was like, these girls are doing like what girls their age are supposed to be doing. Like they're celebrating, they're playing, they're thinking about being a kid and like what they want to be when they grow up. And I remember like just feeling like so sad and kind of frustrated, kind of angry maybe, you know, or maybe internally reflecting. And I was like, how could anyone or myself at any point have viewed these girls as anything but girls like to do this like just to be having fun and 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 you know celebrating life and I think that for me has this huge huge like just a wake up to wow like because like to the dangers of pornography because if you're consuming like hours you know per year right or from I don't know you know it just depends right um you start to internalize you know some of these things that you are seeing like um an example i love to use is during the pandemic call of duty which is this game um they released this you know battle royale concept right and in this concept you're going around you're trying to be the last team standing but if you use a sniper rifle other people can see you because there's like a little glint that you'll you'll notice and you know, I was driving one day, so I'd been playing hours with my friends because it was the pandemic. And one day I was driving and I looked at this bridge, like this overpass, and I saw a glint. And I was driving at like 60 miles per hour, but I like twitched a little bit, you know, almost twitched the 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 car or you know, the steering wheel. And I remember like thinking to myself, it's just it's it's just this is real life, like it's not a game. I'm not playing. But I remember this instance like helped me to like. Um, kind of portray in my mind what I feel like pornography does to our brains because it starts to, we start to see all these themes, you know, no means yes, you know, you know, everybody's who's looking at you, like, you know, is aroused or whatever, or like everybody, you know, like everybody is a potential, you know, and we start to overlay that upon um, our lives. And I think something that spending time with the, the girls at the safe house and then also at the block parties, we'll interact with, you know, um, women who are there who are working, you know, and as I interact with them and as I'm like serving them food and inviting them to come, you know, and like as we're doing the raffle and as we're singing happy birthday to them, where a lot of these women, like they've never had anybody sing happy birthday, you know, it's just, it's like this whole mind shift of, wow, like this is what it's like to look at people as people and not as objects. So, yeah, I, I think there's a huge connection between pornography and trafficking. And it's not to bring any shame and it's not to make anyone feel like guilty. And it's not to say like, oh, you watch pornography, then you're going to be a part of, you know, trafficking. Like, that's not what I'm saying at all. But I think there is a lot more correlation than we would like to hope that there is. Speaking to the message on your shirt, Stop the Demand, what does it look like to change the culture in a way that could decrease trafficking? I think that collectively, like we have to increase our bravery to have uncomfortable conversations. I think for most of my life, the biggest mistakes I've made have been me 
not wanting to have an uncomfortable conversation and then therefore i don't know just doing something that is against my values is you know what have you and and when we're talking about our culture and society as a whole um there's a lot of things that we accept as normal because you know we've seen it in the movies you know it's just a common occurrence you know we don't really question some problematic um thought processes that we have you know whether it's about people you know we could talk about toxic masculinity we could talk about um mental health right we could talk about um you know just to like dive in like really quickly very surface you know of toxic masculinity and mental health i mean for the longest time in my life i thought seeking help seeking therapy is what someone does as a last resort right and so i would have times when i was super anxious you know my boss was being a jerk and you know my relationship was crumbling and everything I was in crisis and I was like I could use therapy I don't know I've never been but I think I could and then a day would pass and then some certain things would kind of resolve as things do in life and I would think oh and then I don't then obviously I don't need therapy anymore like I'm good right and that's like a very toxically masculine I mean it's not just toxically masculine right As, as a society I think we we kind of put this stigma on mental health and, and, and seeking help. Um, but I believe that, you know, if we were more willing to be vulnerable and to realize that, I had a friend say that going to therapy is <laughs> like getting a PhD, but in yourself, like a master's degree in yourself, right? And so I think that's really key. And so we have to question a lot of these things, you know, that we've been taught and, and, and what we believe and. Um, uh, one of my favorite artists, I think, puts it really well. Um, his name is Andy Minio. He has a song called Nobody's Coming. And in his song, he talks about how, you know, he's been waiting, like I'm going to paraphrase and hopefully not butcher it, but he says he's been waiting for someone to come and like save the day for someone to be brave enough to like, you know, to make a change. Right. And there's this line where he's like, maybe like you know if nothing changes before i'm gone then i'll have nobody else to blame it on except himself right and he's like maybe i am the answer to the prayers that i've been praying and like you know you take that as you will but i think it's a great illustration of how so many of us are waiting we look at our society specifically when we're talking about human trafficking and we're like well someone will come and fix that you know someone will come and address that you know maybe there'll be you know, maybe we just have to wait for a critical mass. But if we don't do anything, I think a lot of times the ball is in each of our own personal courts. Like we have to be part of the solution. If we're not part of the solution, then we can't really complain when nothing changes because, you know, we all have the power to make a difference in that. And so I think just those uncomfortable conversations and really digging into some of those very deep beliefs that we have is a great start to and being vulnerable yeah we all can do something about this and i i think i hope everyone listening hears your words and feels encouraged to start small even just having one conversation educating yourself and having one conversation with a friend a family member and just seeing what can happen is there anything else we haven't talked about yet that you would like to share with us paul it's been said many times on the podcast already but um you're not alone And 
Um, you are not a bad person because you're struggling with this, you know, and our recovery is nonlinear. I'm literally just repeating the main themes of considering we're consuming, right? But your recovery is nonlinear and you're not defined by your behavior. Yeah, just don't give up, you know? I think a lot of times we think we would love for that magical pill to happen where we could talk about things in hindsight and be like these experts who like never, you know, who don't have to talk about how we're dealing with it now. But I think that, you know, there's, if you're brave enough, there's a lot of healing that can happen by talking about it now. And you never know who you might accidentally encourage because of your willingness to be vulnerable. And yeah, just be encouraged. Don't give up. And, you know, there's always hope. There's always, you know, there is always, always hope. And the people who love and care about you, they love and care about you for who you are, you know, and who you are is not what you do. So just don't give up and keep fighting. That is so beautifully said, Paul. Thank you so much for making some time for us today and for sharing your story so vulnerably to help others, but also for the amazing work that you're doing in Mexico City. And um, keep in touch. We'd love to hear more about what you're doing. Of course. Thank you so much for the time. It's been an honor. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Consider Before Consuming is brought to you by Fight the New Drug. Fight the New Drug is a non-religious and a non-legislative organization that exists to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using only science, facts, and personal accounts. Check out the episode notes for resources mentioned in this episode. If you find this podcast helpful, please consider subscribing and leaving a review. Consider Before Consuming is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to support Consider Before Consuming, you can make a one-time or recurring donation of any amount at ftnd.org forward slash support. That's ftnd.org forward slash support. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to increase your self-awareness, look both ways, check your blind spots, and consider before consuming. Did you know studies show that most young people today have been exposed to porn by age 13? As porn becomes increasingly normalized, education on its well-documented harms becomes increasingly important. Fight the New Drug's age-appropriate and engaging live presentation program highlights research from respected academic institutions that demonstrate the significant impacts pornography can have on individuals, relationships, and society. Since 2011, Fight the New Drug has delivered over 1,800 live presentations to over 1 million individuals worldwide in order to help them make an informed decision regarding pornography. Change the conversation about pornography by bringing Fight the New Drug to your next school, company, or community event. For more information, visit ftnd.org forward slash live. That's ftnd.org forward slash L-I-V-E. Looking for a way to spread awareness on the harms of porn? 
Why not rep the movement in one of our conversation starting tees? With over 20 tees in various designs and phrases, you're bound to find something that speaks to you and will spark conversations with others. Plus, because we're a 501c3 nonprofit, there are no taxes on your purchase and 100% of the proceeds from your purchase help to mobilize this movement. Get your gear today at ftnd.org forward slash shop. That's ftnd.org forward slash shop. Yeah.